Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome back to the Cyber Law Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Pollock, cybersecurity and privacy attorney. Glad to have you back. Keep those questions, calls, comments coming, 410-917-5189. Very excited today. We've got a great guest. We've got Felicia King, a security architect and InfoSec officer from QPC Security, joining the call today. Felicia, thanks for joining the show. There we go. Felicia, thanks for joining, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, yeah. Well, I think we've got some hot topics going on here. Uh, as you know, on my QPC security podcast uh, that I've been doing since about 2004, I've been a big proponent of this topic of cybersecurity insurance and breach attorney, lots and lots of prep work. I feel like the non-enterprise space is maybe just catching up in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And they're still going to be working very, very hard at trying to catch up in the next uh, 48 months here. And I think that uh, there's still a great deal of misunderstanding about exactly the purposes of breach attorneys. Uh, I'm particularly frustrated by a lot of brokers that I end up working with where they're, you know, they're just not knowledgeable on the on the topic. So uh, I was really excited to hear that uh, you and I were going to do this podcast here where we we're going to talk about this. And so I hope what I can bring is the perspective of that cybersecurity professional. And I'm very, very keenly interested to hear what you have to say about these questions I propose to you. So are you ready for my questions? Yeah, let's rock. I mean, this is very <laughs> different for me. Usually I'm the one posing the questions, but I love getting put on the spot. So let's go. Let's do <laughs> okay. It. All right. Here we go. My, my first question for you is, uh, what needs to be pre-documented for the breach attorney relationship to be successful with a client? That's a great question. And it's something people really neglect because if you come to me when a breach happens and you haven't talked to me beforehand, the process is going to be a lot more painful and a lot more expensive. So before the breach happens, I think, one, you need to have that representation locked in. Right? You need to do your homework and you need to get people who want to do the compliance side, the privacy, cybersecurity side on the legal, not technical or security before a breach. So then they're with you when the breach happens. Right. So you need to get them baked into your life. Uh, I look at it as the annoying uncle that's going to be living with you for a couple months or a couple of years. But then again, it's good to have them when you need an extra hands, you know, to help clean up or give rides. So now, how, how would you say that that effort uh, decreases the overall total expense of the breach that that pre-work? So if you imagine if you called me, say, on a Friday at, I don't know, 8 p.m., and you tell me you have a breach, I don't know anything about you, and you're, I'm going to have to go into overtime, basically, and I'm going to have to spend oodles and lots and lots of hours with you and your team to figure out who you are, right, to figure out who I need to get involved, to figure out, well, who is the Felicia in this situation, and we need to get Felicia, and then I got to ask Felicia the questions, then we got to go back to you as a CEO and say, all right, now figure out who's your CTO, figure out who's your HR, figure out where all of your information is. And those costs, if you can imagine, I mean, look, I, I'm always available, right? Breach threads are always available. But the costs are going to increase substantially if you're going to pull me in on at night, on a weekend, if I have to put you to the front of the line. Now, but if you look at it, if you've involved me at the front end before all this happens, I know your systems to an extent. I know Felicia, right? I know that I need Felicia involved 
when it happens, but I've already talked to her beforehand because now we form this team. I know where your information is. I know what kind of information you have. I know who to get involved very quickly. So if well, you look, I would also suggest that that information is actually available. And mm-hmm. because more often than not, companies who haven't done this sort of pre-work, they just don't even have the information. So they're going to, I think, find themselves in a pickle where you're asking for stuff they don't have documented. Oh, yeah. And certainly not in an organized format. Not at all. Yeah. So then we're going to spend hours upon hours beyond the legal costs, right? Just the operational costs. Because people just think, as I'm sure, Felicia, you know, when a breach happens, they think someone can come in, whether it's an attorney. Well, they don't think I can come in on the technical side and flip a switch, but they think it's just technical, just security. You can, Felicia, you can come in, you'll flip the switch, you're fine, right? Everything's fine. But if we don't know the client beforehand, yeah, right, you're walking into a, I guess you could call it, I don't know, a, a toy store without any idea what you're about to buy. And I'm not a great analogy, but if you just imagine you've got rows or going to Wegmans, a large grocery store. I always get lost if I don't have a list and I don't know where I'm going. And that's just what's going to happen. So we're going to spend hour after hour. At well, that point you know, I, I think your, you know, your, uh, your analysis of this is spot on because I can't tell you how many times I have had phone calls from people who are saying, hey, we have our cybersecurity insurance requires us to have MFA on our VPN. Can you put that in by, you know, the end of next week? And then I just start laughing myself silly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, no, no, because probably we have to remediate, you know, 70 to 80 hours, maybe 120 hours worth of junk in your environment before mm-hmm. we can even get to an SSL VPN with MFA. <laughs> and to your point they're calling they're calling us up saying can you do this and there's no pre-existing relationship right there's no retainer on file there's no master services agreement you know it's just funny as it's just it's it's hysterically funny when they do that and you're going to get put in like clients that don't have that pre-existing relationship say with you or with me or with any other security professional any other lawyer any forensics it slows the process down so much because what you just said, right? Well, I'm going to send you my letter of engagement. You, I mean, you don't want to review it? Okay, just sign it and send it back. Likely I'm, <laughs> I'm going to want you to review it, right? Yeah. And you might want to come back and negotiate with me about some of the terms. Well, I'm going to tell you that's fine. We can do that, but it's things are going to slow down, right? But on the other side, if you have that the MSA with you already in place, if you have yeah. the retainer with me in place, then it's just you pick up the phone and we just go. Well, you know, money only moves so quickly anyhow, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know about you, but I tend to not rip my whole team off of the hot stuff they're already working on that clients have already paid us to do yeah. for someone who hasn't paid us yet. Yeah, <laughs> it's the priority list, right? It's it's a natural thing in business of, and I tell clients this, I'm like, look, I care about all my clients. If you're a new client though, and you want to go to the top of the queue, just financially, you better be able to pony up pretty quickly, right? And this is not about greed. It's about we all have other clients who have also paid. So we can only get stretched so much and prioritize so much. And a lot of it does come down to the financial. And if you haven't established that relationship beforehand, I do think you're going to get charged probably a fair amount more than you would have if you had that relationship already in place. So um, I 
I had a really excellent attorney in the uh, criminal law space uh, at one point in time give me some very excellent advice. She'd been in the industry for like 40 years, and she says, you know, the number one thing that she talks to about her clients um, is to create the life log in advance and to do it in a particular format and all of that. And it just so drastically condenses that time frame whereby she can just get right in there and start helping. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this, the pre-documenting, are you looking for the things to be pre-documented that it's basically the cybersecurity posture of the organization? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to look at this from two angles, right? I think the two biggest cogs when you're talking about cybersecurity are the compliance and legal and the technical and the security, right? They're both almost equally as important. They just come in in different waves. The security side always comes before the legal side, and I hate to admit that, but it does because I need you all to be able to identify the gaps. I need you to identify the infrastructure so then you can help me then write these policies, plans, and procedures. We can write any policy, right? I can write you a plan in about 10 minutes, but that's because I can Google incident response plan and pass it over to you and just put a company name in. But how's that ever gonna help someone? So I need to know your posture beforehand. The only way I can do that is involving good partners like you, right? If I don't involve someone like Felicia or any other company similar, then how am I ever going to know your technical infrastructure? If I don't know your technical infrastructure, I won't know your. Comp- I won't know how to basically explain to regulators, clients, employees what you've done to be reasonable. Well, yeah, I mean, you just touched on the thing right there, which is the defensibility of the reasonableness of the posture that exists there. And uh, I feel like you know this whole breach attorney piece is really an add-on to the incident response plan, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you should start with your IRP and then you should start tabletopping into that. And part of that tabletop exercise is, do we have what our breach attorney needs in order to effectively engage rapidly? Yes. And I think, I mean, if I, I think I just condensed it right there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And uh, so let's talk a little bit more about formats do you have you ever you know have you seen companies give you stuff in a format that was just instantaneously accessible and usable for you yes yeah well i mean the ones that we've helped beforehand and this as a security expert you might hate this and as a legal expert i hate it too but here's the biggest problem right as a breach coach when i come in and we know there's a breach and we know we have to notify as you know felicia data's everywhere yep client names information's everywhere and people don't get how long that takes to collect and put in a format. You can't just write down a bunch of names and hand them to me if I have to send notifications, official letters out. The clients right now that have an incident response plan with me have really data mapped and then have almost a list. And what I tell them is we work with someone like you, Felicia, right, to get it secure, where we have a list of clients, addresses, information impacted and it's not it's segregated from the network so god forbid something happened but on the other side we know where all the data is if something happens we plan in place saying this is on server a this is on server b so on and so forth and then we know if it's impacted then i have that clean excel sheet being like all right you know i don't know spencer pollock's in server a and that information not impacted felicia king's in server b that information was impacted. We're going to move over to the notification side. Those clients are in such a better position in terms of cost because then they don't have to data mine. 
data mine is a huge expense. Time, right? If I can get notifications out after a forensic investigation has figured out there is a breach, oh my, that's the biggest time consumer is trying to get that together. Those clients are in a better position. You know, it's it's I, I'm over here nodding my head furiously because uh, in the last two months I had to engage one of my very large clients on this particular topic where they have PII, PHI and some PCI data in databases. And I was asking their software application vendor for a for a few things. One, data pruning. Yes, let's actually prune data we don't need anymore. Better attention. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're teaching my language. <laughs> and then the other thing I was asking them for was we need to have a process in place, like a script that we can run on a regular scheduled basis on a database server that will extract to a totally isolated space mm-hmm. that provides a detailed extract of customer record, their contact information, and what type of data was impacted so that we know if this system is breached, we have a rapid response. Because what I said to my client was, you don't have the time to sit around and execute a recovery of that data Mm-hmm. So that you can get your list can of people it. you have to notify for yeah. a breach. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And it's like, you no, know, he, here's the part that just floors me. It floors me that this data company, the software company, had never, ever had this query provided to them Ever. I was like the three-headed alien, right? You know, I mean, here's this massive, massive software company, and I'm the only one that's ever asked for this. And they didn't come up with this on their own either. I mean, if I ran that software company, I would have had this stuff pre-done. This yeah. would have been like a, a little, you know, service pack you put on the software for your customers. I mean, this has got to be SOP these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody thinks about it, though. Nobody just... You get that email, you get that Excel document, you get the PDF document, you get this data set. You just go like, you just put it wherever, right? You put it here, you put it there. Nobody, well, nobody so, knows where stuff is. So this is exactly why, uh, this is exactly why companies have to basically have me in one of their pockets and you in their other pocket. Yes. <laughs> you know? it, it and, does- and, I, and I would say they also need to find another pocket to find a really, really, really competent broker. Yes. Because the ex- the experiences I've had in the last 12 months is that the success model for these customers is that they have that ongoing daily regular advice from my team, but that they're also getting their corporate counsel is getting the right type of advice, not only from the broker, but from someone like you. And I just don't see how these companies are going to navigate these complexities of the compliance, the 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 risk, the um, risk management. I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it if they don't get the right people involved. They're not. And I, I, what you just said is so spot on. I think one of the more important beyond the technical and the legal side is the broker side, because you have companies who are going to their auto or commercial broker, right? And being like, oh, 
can you get me cyber? And like, yeah, sure. Let me get you a rider of $5,000. You know, they don't know what a breach coach is. They don't know what a security ar- architect is. They don't know what MFA is. They don't know any of this stuff. But then they're trying to guide their clients. So it's such a very much a specific niche. And I tell every one of my clients, I'm like, we need to get you to a broker. We need to get you to someone who right. knows what they're doing. Because especially in this environment, the market is so hard that if you can't tell a good story, it's no longer let's just check the boxes, right? People are still just checking the boxes and asking, you know, people at Ufilation to fill out their application and then yeah. the test, basically. Which, which is not going to happen. <laughs> no. But I mean, a lot of people are doing it, though, amazingly. And then I've seen a lot recently get disclaimed, being like, wait, you didn't have MFA. You didn't have it across your enterprise. You didn't have it enforced. You know, you told us you had 100 and you, you had X amount of servers. Well, you had you know, 100 more. So let me let me ask you a scenario here because um, there's like a piece of it that I understand and then there's a piece of it I don't understand. I'm hoping you can fill in the gap here. So I know that if someone even they could actually in good faith answer yes or no, but if they don't understand the question, they could be answering the wrong question, right? So they in that case, they can actually be committing material misrepresentation yep. and therefore fraud on the application, which is clearly justification for denying their claim. Mm-hmm. And and I would argue that that's really catastrophic because that means that the next year when they actually go to apply, they're going to have to say, have you ever been denied? And we're going to say yes. And then, you know, the, the plethora of explanation comes out after that. So the part that I'm not clear on here is... It would seem to me, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it would seem to me that there could be some further down the line kind of criminal fraud implications in the case that data was breached, it adversely impacted consumers, customers, and then through a discovery process, yeah. it was found that material misrepresentation occurred. Then somebody could, you know, an, an impacted party could say, you know, we we think you've got criminal liability here because as the executive management team member of that company, you filled out a bunch of lies on this application and you signed it. I think so. It's an I think definitely on the civil side, it's going to increase penalties because you're right. You know, I'm remembering my prior trial days where I would pull different forms and be like, you check this box, you check this box, which then obviously is going to help the case. So I think being able to paint a company being like, well, you said you had MFA, right? But you didn't. Like, what did you, you didn't understand that? Do you just certify things? Um, the criminal side, I think is going to be more of a stretch in terms of criminal penalties, because you have to actually have in, a lot of its intent there, right? You, I mean, gross negligence, probably be an easier sell, but that still is going to go towards the civil side. Um, I think if you have the knowing, right, the knowing misrepresentation rather than the negligent misrepresentation, that's why I think the civil side is definitely going to be implicated. I don't know about the criminal side, though. It would it would definitely well, take new let, Let's Let's say they've got eight questions on that application that they lied on. They knowingly lied. Yep. So this is now a pattern of evidence. Oh, you're asking like the criminal question, which is outside my lane. My well, initial reaction would be I'd have to figure out if there's a cause of action under a criminal code for it. I don't think that I, I mean. See, I'm, they, I'm thinking I'm thinking this gets really tense because the Federal Trade Commission has a criminal fraud statute that talks about it is materially criminal fraud 
if you fail to disclose a material fact to a customer or prospect before they buy, and then they would have made a completely different decision had that material fact been disclosed to them. And, yeah. and so now if, if the, if this particular business's customers did business with them under the premise, for example, that mm-hmm. they had cybersecurity insurance, but if they had lied like a rug on the application, it's in essence, they don't really have cybersecurity insurance. So now this is a critical component of that contractual relationship between the company and its customers. Yeah, I mean, look, it's an interesting theory. You know, but I really the criminal standard is pretty high versus the civil. I mean, you make good points. It definitely be the under the unfair and uh, deceptive trade practices. Right. And every state's got their own little statute with that. Same with the FTC to get to the criminal penalties. I mean, you'd have to prove they are knowingly doing it. That's where I think you get into a you get into a gray area with that. And I think a good defense attorney on the criminal side would be able to skirt around it, I think, unless you have someone who like truly knew that what they were doing, they could prove that they had actual knowledge of what was going on with that. But at the very least, this is an expensive problem. Oh, God, because I mean, I wouldn't and I wouldn't want to be on the forefront of a case precedent where they bring criminal (laughs) charges against a director or officers. Right. That the last thing you ever want is to be on the forefront of a case. Right. You don't want to be the precedent out there. You do right. not, because God help you if you're on the other side of the precedent and you get on the ro- or the wrong side of the precedent. There. Okay. All right. So let me change tack here a little bit and I'll go to my next question about, um, let's say you have a cybersecurity insurance policy and you are trying to locate a breach coach and or a breach attorney and interact with them in the ways in which you're going to not suffer from what I would characterize as a lot of um, handoffs between personnel. And because I feel like, and you, you know, correct me if here if I'm wrong, but I feel like the more people that are involved in the handoffs um, because of inefficiency or whatever, mm-hmm. the cost goes through the roof. So what can we do to protect ourselves from those things? It's a pre-established relationship, right? It's where, Everything's already in place where, because you're right, the handoffs is where you, if, the more times you got to get someone on beyond the aggravation to a client of having to explain something multiple times, the more times you need me on the call, obviously, the more times the billing is going to occur. So the more, and it just, it goes back to our points, the preparation side. So the more you bake people in, the less time you're going to spend with me on the phone trying to get up to speed. And I mean, I think especially getting someone written into a cybersecurity insurance policy or cyber policy insurance policy is so critical because then you simultaneously make the claim. But the insurance carrier has already said, all right, you can work with Spencer. So you don't you make the claim and then you would instantly call me and then you just get running at that point rather than making the claim and waiting a couple of days potentially for somebody to get back to you, which is a problem. So uh, let me tack off of that a little bit then, because I've had a couple different experiences and uh, it's a little bit difficult to navigate the broker space, I think. In some cases, I've been able to, during the application period, request the addition of a particular breach attorney to the broker. The information was received and they handled it. In another case, I've encountered a broker who was like, well, we can't do anything until we've got a policy. And it's like, I, that doesn't seem to be right to me because it it seems to me that 
the broker should be interacting with the carriers, the insurance companies during that application period and saying, we want, you know, this breach attorney. So, Mm -hmm. so what guidance do you have for us there? I mean, it's definitely the introduction, like it's the education of some of the brokers, right? Who is, some people just don't want to do more work. So it's so much easier not to have to, I'm not going to name names, but it is, right? It's like, you know who they are. (laughs) You don't, sometimes you just don't want to do more work. So, you know, Felicia calls and says, hey, we want Spencer into the policy. Well, yeah, they have strict standards. Sorry, we're not doing it. When on the other side, if you talk to them, (laughs) you're like, this is what your client wants. This is what yeah. they feel comfortable with. This is going to decrease their cost, their reputational harm. They're, you know, how long they're going to be down for. Just make a phone call. Does the underwriter have a problem? Okay, get the underwriter on the phone with the broker and Spencer or ex breach attorney. So people then understand because if you start talking to a breach counsel, you're going to know pretty quickly if they know what they're doing or if they don't know what they're doing. So it sounds like what you're saying is that really the business owner needs to be driving that requirement with the broker Mm -hmm. during the application period. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and if your broker is pushing back, then maybe it's time to get a new broker. Uh, I agree. Yeah. To me, it's like (laughs) your broker is there as your advocate. And like, you're not going to make some ridiculous demand of like, give me Uncle Joe attorney down the street that's a general practitioner, like that's not reasonable. But if you find someone who's actually in this space and can prove it and can validate it, then that's just the broker needs to take a little bit more time and effort, but it takes the client coming being like, you need to do this, right? It's just, we're all there to help the client. Everyone, yeah. myself, you, a broker, an adjuster, even technically, you know, we all wanna to get to the same, we're all rowing in the same direction, hopefully. Yeah. Um, that's very helpful clarification because I had my instincts that some of these brokers were off in left field. And uh, <laughs> so I, I appreciate the validation and, there. And don't, don't get me wrong. Like the panels that are there, they've got great attorneys on them, you know, but I've always made the argument that you need to have a relationship already in place. And I think any good breach coach will tell you the same thing. At, and your insurance carriers will have panels. Go vet a couple of them. Right. Form that relationship with them before anything happens, just because it goes back to what we just said. If you have that relationship, then that breach coach, you know who you can call and they can get moving really quickly. So let's drill down on that a little bit then. So let's say somebody has a Beasley. Okay, Beasley has a panel. Um, Customer looks in Beasley's thing, selects some companies, calls up and stuff, and then they have these meetings and uh, and they decide, okay, we're going to go with this company. Is that then a matter of more formalization going on between that business and uh, the insurance carrier, like telling Beasley specifically, I have selected and I want to pre-vet. And now, now, and, and okay, so if if we do that, then um, how is it handled in that pre-relationship? Because, you know, clearly the, the breach attorneys don't work for free. So what's what's happening there in that transaction? So if you're talking about like if they're already on the panel using Beasley, if attorney X is already on Beasley's panel, it's really easy, right? Because then you go in, you talk to Beasley, will give you their panel. It's like, here's law firm X, law firm Y, law firm Z. And you're like, okay, I like law firm Z. And I like attorney A from there, Right. But they're already selected. So then it's just now, to me, you want to get a, you don't even need a retainer at that point. I mean, I think you would want to do a retainer with them because at a lot of times 
those attorneys, as breach coaches, we get slammed. And once again, it goes back to the relationships we have, even though the insurance carrier is going to cover it. If you have a retainer in place and you've been working with us beforehand, it's a natural thing that we're going to put you to the top of the list. Um, and if we're too, if you don't have a relationship beforehand, even if you like uh, Law Firm Z, if Law Firm Z is at capacity, they're not going to take you because they're not going to be able to give you good service. So it's basically just having a conversation, picking what law firm you want, getting someone written in or going to their panel and feeling comfortable with whatever law firm it is or maybe whatever specific lawyer. Because my clients who've got me written into policies, right, they have my cell phone, they have my breach line, they can get a hold of me like that. Um, and it's the same thing, right? And I work with a great team right now, but some want, some clients want me, some clients want one of my partners or colleagues, which is fine. But it's making sure you have that conversation beforehand with the insurance carrier, because then everything's been mapped. It's all expectations, right? And all communication. If people know what's going on, they feel more comfortable with it, and then they're okay with it, and then things move quicker. So how are the uh, these pre-meetings, these, you know, get to know meetings and, hey, take a look at our documentation and is, you know, is this good enough for you? Do you want more detail? Like, you know, where's our gaps? These preparation meetings, these are, I presume, covered by a pre-established, you know, retainer and it's not covered under the insurance policy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Right. That's where you get differences. I mean, the insurance carrier will refer you to people like me and different law firms that are on their panels that do the pre-work, but it's not covered under their policy. Um, you might be able to work out different rates. In general, though, the pre-breach stuff is going to definitely not be, well, not definitely not covered. There, They are have some places that do it covered, but I don't think there's that many. So it's going to be a separate engagement. Um, but the way I do it, I just have it under basically, and most lawyers, they have it under one engagement, right? Where then it's going to be, different fees for different services. So here's your fee for the pre-breach stuff. Here's the fee if a breach happens, you know, because some of it's flat fee, some of it's hourly. So then it's going to change. But it's all, once again, it's all laid out before any of this occurs. So so this is, again, another realm where the prepared business is financially benefiting from being prepared because the potential exists for them to uh, be charged the non-emergency fee. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you just imagine, if you're going to make me spend 24 hours on a Friday through a Saturday helping you, I'll do it. But it's going to be probably a different fit because of the amount of time that you're going to have to put in. I think most lawyers would tell you that, too. And it's also resources. It might not even be an increased fee, but if I have to bring three other attorneys in to help right. me with some right. massive project that we would have had buttoned up before, right. I mean, it's triple the cost. Well, you know, the reality is that we're all organic material. Yeah. And and there is a cost to piss poor prior planning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all the prep. It's all preparation, 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 preparation. I mean, I know, you know, with your clients, right? They're not prepared for this. I mean, God help us on the security side, because the legal side, at least I have a couple of weeks, a couple of days. The security side. Oh, man, it's trying to like sift through that. I, I feel I feel for you. I feel for anybody else in this area. Right. Because it's a headache. And it just that is a, I think that's the biggest cost increaser because it's the reputation, right? It's the financial at that point, it's the legal. And it's just when you don't know, it's already hard enough when this is going on. And then when you are asking questions, when I'm asking questions, nobody wants to answer the questions. They just want to get back on work. They just want to go. 
right? Well, so, you know, there, another observation I've had over the last, because, you know, I've been doing heavy, heavy, heavy cybersecurity compliance stuff for at least the last six months for clients, if not longer, um, just, you know, intensively and kind of like what I would call this, you know, application, cybersecurity application renewal period. And another massive observation that I had throughout this is that if these clients didn't have us and if they were relying on their internal IT, they would have just gone in flames. Oh, well, internal IT is just not, I feel, I feel for internal IT, right? And I, I'm sure you do, well, the good ones. It depends if they want to understand their limitations. Just like if you came to me with a criminal matter, or I'd be like, or an M&A matter, I'd be like, no, 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 that's not, that's not, no, 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 right. no. But so internal IT is really good at fixing your computer about figuring out why your email is not working. They're not good at the cybersecurity uh, right. architecture, about the security strategy. They're really important with helping implement things because they're on the ground, right? They're already embedded. So we need them, but you're right. A lot of them rely on it because expectations. I, well, I, think I, I think the biggest problem that I've seen that I'm really hoping that all business decision makers are understanding now is that they're actually not saving themselves money by only asking internal IT. And I think that that's where they've really gotten themselves into trouble in the past is exclusively relying on internal IT. They're not availing themselves of multiple inputs so that that executive decision maker can be put into an informed decision making process. And and these are the biggest sources of the fraudulent applications that I've seen is where they, you know, they ask internal IT to fill out these applications for them. And then, you know, the executive person just trusts internal IT and then they just sign it and they don't understand it. And internal IT, frankly, didn't understand the questions either. And even if they thought they did, they didn't understand the implications of the questions. Exactly. So, I mean, it's just putting people in a bad position because, once again, we live in such a hyper-click world, right? It's like, just get it done. Get it back to me. No excuses. We're good, right? So, But rather than taking the step back to understand the complexity of the questions and understand that you need actually experienced experts to help you get to that point rather than just passing it to Felicia and saying, all right, Felicia, hey, you're an expert at this. You fill it out. You sign it, and then I'll I'll do it. Right? It's like no. You need to sit down with Felicia and go over this stuff to make sure you're actually doing it. Beyond the fact that, you know, you don't want to misrepresent what you're doing. It's all good things. Right? It's all things that you probably need right. for your company. I mean, the I questions mean, are not there for randomness. Well, to me as a business owner, it's actually incomprehensible to me that I would delegate. That that decision making process to someone else, yet I would accept a hundred percent of the liability for signing that application. Yeah, I mean that's just it's it's an incomprehensible position. <laughs> so, um, what's your what's your thoughts on this latest federal legislation ab- around the the condensing of the breach notification period? I think you're going to see it. I mean, with the new Cybersecurity Strengthening Act. It's going to make things a little bit more interesting moving forward. I mean, they have to define things a little bit more clearly. They're going to have to go through rulemaking. So it's not going to be an instantaneous switch. But I think the whole emphasis to start, obviously, is on the critical infrastructure. But they really don't define it too well, like financial services. Well, under the GLB, the Graham leach Blahi Act, that's a really wide definition. But I don't think they're talking about a common CPA. Um, I think this is just going to what you're going to see now is going to be the trend we're already seeing moving forward. 
tighter timelines to notify government entities. A lot of overreach, though, with government regulators because a lot of it's not challenged yet and a lot of it's not mis- is not understood. Right. Uh, they're just they're human beings, too. And it's very yeah. complex things out there. So, well, I mean, we saw this in CISA's recommendations on what small businesses should do with regards to interacting with their service providers. Yes, exactly. And it's a huge the law has tried to get ahead of itself or has gotten ahead of itself at times, right, with throwing words into a document and then trying to enforce it, which is a problem. I mean, look, the CCPA, every lawyer out there that's read this will tell you a lot of it makes absolutely no sense. And there's so many errors in it. I don't know what California was thinking. And I'm I'm not <laughs> knocking California, but I am knocking California a little bit because I don't know what they were doing. They literally just threw legislation together. And then you get privacy attorneys like me and a bunch of others being like, wait, what are you talking about right now? So. I think it's just a common trend because a lot of it is not defined well enough because we don't understand, right? You talk about unauthorized access, unauthorized acquisition, but they don't go to the next level of really defining it. I mean, they define like biometric data. That's really well defined. But a lot of the other stuff, like a financial account, I'm getting a little bit in the weeds in terms of data breach notification rules, but access to a financial account, well, if I have your bank account number and your routing number, or your your account number and your routing number, does that mean I have access to it? I could do ACH payments, I don't know. So I think just going back to what we were talking about with the federal legislation, it's all good intention, right? It's about protecting people, protecting infrastructure, protecting our country, uh, individual information, but we really gotta start getting more into the weeds about this. We gotta really understand the implication of these laws and how we wanna enforce them to try to protect people and the, and the and businesses. Well, so what you're touching on is is the thing that I harp on constantly with regards to these cyber liability policy applications and the questions that are on there. You know, one of my specialties is looking at that question, what is it intending to assess? Right? Yeah. What risk is that question intending to assess? So in the case of the legislation, the question comes down to what risk are they intending to mitigate yes. or reduce, right? And deter, yes. And and that becomes the, the problem is that the people who are influencing this legislation are not practitioners who know how to fix the problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I'm sure they're they're talking, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure they're talking to smart people. Well, I, I think they're talking to enterprise people which are are okay i'll give you a great example okay i'm one of the few information security officers that is out there that can actually do the full assessment can engineer the entire solution can project manage it all the way through and can drive the every technical piece of that project from head to end mm-hmm. the vast majority of people who are in the you know, cybersecurity space don't have, and especially at that, like that level of, you know, ISO level, do not have that kind of technical skill. So the, so there's this massive gap between the, the people who are like CISOs and information security officers in general, who may be getting queried by the federal government and their Mm -hmm. representatives versus 
the people who are the practitioners who know how to actually solve the problem and those nuances of, well, this isn't, you know, you shouldn't actually ask for it this way because that isn't actually an effective mitigation or is it a practical mitigation? We're not, we're not, the right arm's not talking to the left arm, right? Left arm's not talking to the right arm. There's not this incorporate, everything we talk about right now goes to the legislation as well. It's like, this is a team game. This is, we need to be, and cyber is so unique because it's a team game, right? It's not just one fiefdom. It's not just healthcare. It's not just transportation. It's not just retail. It's everything. And when you're trying to really address the problems, it's every facet of an enterprise. So there's so much complexity to it. And that's where I think the laws are losing sight and just throwing these broad regulations out to see what is going to stick. And once again, it's there yeah. to help. It's there to help. It's there to deter, punish so they can change behavior and protect people and protect critical infrastructure and commerce. But without a more granular approach, I think we're just going to see more confusion. And once again, I'm just trying not to be on the forefront of a case. That's what my goal is right now. <laughs> So uh, let me change tactics a little bit to SP-800-177. So first off, do you know what that is off the no, top of your head? No, off the top of my head. I was about to Google it. I'm, I, I'm I, transparent. I didn't expect you to. That was that was an unfair yeah, question. I, I, I own the lane I'm in. Let's, let's go with that. <laughs> okay, so this is the, the NIST uh, specification for trustworthy email. Okay. And I think you're you're very well aware that the NDAA 2021 legislation included, mm-hmm. you know, enhanced SPFD Kim and DMARC. Yep. And SP 800-177 includes all of those lovely things as well as the recommendations for email content security, including encryption and authentication of message content. You know, so ultimately it's, again, going towards that intent of ensuring that whatever is transmitted via email is is done so privately, so no more of this clear text open email, uh, and then also that there are valid email authentication mechanisms going in place, such that you know a sender, a sender, and a recipient are able to more so establish you are actually who you say you are. So therefore, I'm going to accept your message. So what have you seen, uh, have you seen anything in, you know, your space with regards to, you know, enforcement of this, especially in the side of, um, I'm thinking in terms of like, you know, supply chain risk management, Mm -hmm. where you've got one of your customers has a, has a vendor and that vendor is doing just garbage for email security. What implication do things like that have? I mean, nobody's doing anything right now. I mean, not much. Now, they should be doing more. I think emails are a huge problem. And I think everything that you're discussing is going to be very important. And I think the vendor risk is so, so important, right, in terms of what kind of security they have in place and in terms of what kind of due diligence people are going to be able to do. Now, the more specific, the, the problem is nobody knows about it, right? Like, you just dropped something on me that I didn't know. I was about to Google and try to act like I knew about it. So, I mean, I'm I'm in this sphere. I'm not in the technical sphere of it, but companies don't really think about this. And it's once again, it's all the educational pieces here. Yeah, I think the our clients all knew about this because I we had always been very proactive about these things anyways. But then I 
was having these technical discussions with the management teams and internal IT telling them about the NDA 2021 legislation. And I think we really started going hot and heavy on a DMARC and weekly modification, or I'm sorry, monitoring of things, you know, of that status roundabout probably June 2021 so that we could get, um, you know, so that we could get totally compliant, right, mm-hmm. by, by I think it was sometime in December last year. So uh, we, we should do more topics like this because I've, I've got some questions also I want to ask you maybe on another podcast about software bill of materials, supply chain risk management, vulnerability assessment, right? Oh, yeah. there's, there's a lot of these things that businesses need to be doing and they don't really understand the adverse impact of them not doing it. And I'd really like to have your perspective on that from a, uh, you know, from that legal side. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are so many topics that we could cover. That's what makes cyber so cool because there's so many different, well, it's cool and scary. There's so many risks, right? <laughs> but the risks make it really scary. But on the other side, it makes it really cool because you got to keep learning about it. You got to keep educating yourself. <laughs> the second you get off, I'm going to be learning more about this. Uh, with the standard that you just discussed. So, I mean, I, I think the discussion, we definitely will continue this discussion. And I think, you know, this was a really good chat about all the different variations and the problems that we're still seeing, you know, since both of us probably have been doing it. I mean, you, it's you're just, the only one that I know this is. It's cool and scary. It is cool and scary. It's like you're on a roller coaster almost, right? You get to the top and you're really scared. And I hate roller coasters, I guess. Probably not the best example. <laughs> When you get to the top, you're really scared, and then it's like, "Ooh, this is a lot of fun," but it really is not fun. But it is. No, so. no, because those of, I can tell you that a lot of us in the infrastructure side, especially, I mean, I've got 29 years of experience, and those of us on the infrastructure side were like, "This is not only not cool, it's not scary either." <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just it's, new. It's so new, and it's so different. It's so, uh, I love, I love the learning aspect of all of it. Well, right? it's just I, I think, so intense. I think our perspective is we have a little bit of of frustrated fatigue on the topic because if I have to look at another FBI statement recommending that people perform network segmentation, I think my head just might pop off because I was doing, (laughs) you know, seriously, I was doing micro segmentation back in 1997. This is not (laughs) a new thing. It shouldn't be an issue anymore. We don't need the FBI to tell us this. (laughs) People don't like to read, so it it is what it is. Okay, Um, well, I'm going to hold on to my topics for next time. Yes, please do. And this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. I, I mean, I like being the question rather than the questioner. So that was fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, and to the awesome. audience, thank you all for coming. Keep the questions, comments, call, questions, calls, comments. There we go. Coming 410-917-5189. And Felicia, thank you again for uh, coming on the show. No problem. I'm going to post this uh, also on my podcast, so we'll we'll cross pollinate. Oh, yeah. Wait. So, what's the name of your podcast again? So the audience can go jump on that as well. It is qpcsecurity.podbean.com. Got it. Go check it out. I know Felicia's got great topics, great discussions, and uh, everybody out there have a great morning, great afternoon, or great evening. <laughs>